It's the TEH podcast, episode number 157. I'm Leo Notenboom of askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com. So I think we could just dive right into it. I think we really yeah. do need to acknowledge the uh, news, the events of the world stage today. And fortunately, there for us, there are some interesting tech aspects involved in what's going on in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly don't have to, you know, give any background about what's going on over there. Besides, by the I time everybody this gets, knows, by yeah. the time this gets listened to, people will probably uh, it, everything will have changed, right? This this is a very fluid and, and yeah. dynamic situation over there. But one of the things that um, I was thinking of as I was thinking about uh, what's going on and, and uh, you know what we what we typically try to talk about, and that is that. This has been a very different flavor of conflict when it comes to technology and especially um, uh, social media. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find interesting, we, we, we talk a lot about social media as being a destructive force, mostly because I think it's a lot of how people see it here in the United States, the kinds of things that it's been used for to further divide the, you know, the, the people uh, to polarize across um, political and other ideological realms. Um, but in this case, there's some interesting stuff going on with social media in Ukraine that I find um, in part both fascinating and also kind of sort of hopeful, for lack of a better term, um, that you know maybe this social media thing can be used for good. The, uh, the, the examples we're seeing are that a lot of the, the most accurate information, as it turns out, is coming out of Kiev, Ky- uh, as it's pronounced. I'll talk yes. about that in a minute. Um, out of Kiev via social media, via, mm. for lack of a better term, citizen reporters who are out there um, you know, recording stuff on TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and and pushing it out via the various social media uh, funnels they have. Um, I find that very, very interesting. And honestly, in a lot of ways, uh, the live streams especially, to me, feel a lot more trustworthy than some of the things that are coming through official channels. Uh, which I don't think is something that a lot of people would have said about social media just a few months ago, if not a couple of years ago. Um, not that there isn't, you know, active disinformation campaigns being fought. Uh, I was listening to the uh, the Wall Street Journal's tech podcast this morning, and they pointed out that yes, both sides, all sides, Russia in particular, but all sides are uh, are also trying to do that, but for various reasons. Um, it's not having the same dramatic impact as some of the disinformation campaigns have uh, have been having in the past across the United States. And I'm not sure what the reasoning is behind that. Um, I, I view this now, the, the, the statement that I made a little a little while ago, is that this particular conflict is a war of technology as much as it is guns and and people shooting at each other. The yeah. um, there's a lot more obviously going on than social media, and we'll touch on some of those things. But um, I don't know. I, what's your reaction to all that? Do you, I mean, like I said, it seems it just feels very, very different than anything we've experienced before. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the things is is that Ukraine's a modern country, right? A lot of wars that have taken place recently um, have either been in countries that have been lagging behind in terms of infrastructure and technology. Uh, in some ways, or one of the sides has, you know, a, a country lagging behind has been invaded by another country or attacked by another country, that this is, 
you know, two modern countries, both modern, you know, with modern militaries, but also with just modern technology, the hands of citizens um, at war. Uh, you mentioned, you know, citizen reporting, but it's also official media reporting too is benefiting from this. If you think of how it was that long ago that if you were a correspondent from a major media source, you know, the BBC or CNN or somebody, um, you needed quite a bit of support to get your broadcast out, your your nightly report or whatever it was. Um, you don't need that anymore. Right. You just, you, you know, you you're this, have the same phone that the person standing next to you, just you happen to work for, you know, a news outlet. And, but all you need is your phone. Uh, you see the ubiquitous, almost ubiquitous AirPods hanging out of people's ears. They're using those as earpieces and microphones. Right. Um, and, you know, you think, uh, you, you know, how, how expensive was all that technology before? Now it's like AirPods, like, you know, I've got two sets of them. Right. You know, they're, they're relatively cheap, right? And you've got a microphone, you've got e an earphone, noise canceling earphones if you really want. And your phone is able to broadcast over the internet live. Uh, it, so that's pretty incredible. I, you know, I, my TikTok feed has basically been taken over with live streams from Ukraine because right. I've, every time I come across one, I kind of stare at it and listen and, and all of that for a while. So it's learned that, oh, you want to see more of this. So here you go. Um, right, right. I follow some people from Ukraine. I was following some people from Ukraine before as things were intensifying mm -hmm. and, and they're broadcasting more. Some of them are in Ukraine. Some of them are Ukrainians outside of Ukraine, right. but obviously have friends and family inside. So have some information. There's some misinformation there too. I know that there have been reports of even live from inside Ukraine feeds being found out as not being from Ukraine at all. Right. Um, a, a lot of these seem to be mostly people trying to get attention, not actually people trying to uh, subvert the you know the news. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, the and also I, I would have expected. That you know, five minutes after uh, you know the war had begun, that internet in Ukraine would be knocked out somehow. Right. I mean, I right. don't you know. It's like, I, where are the choke points for the internet? Where are the lines? Where and no, still right now, still completely strong. I mean, there's the whole Elon Musk thing, but that's not even it doesn't seem to be needed as much yet, right? Because the lines of communication seem to be open. Right, right. It is fascinating. You're right. One of the first things I would have expected too is the internet to just sort of suddenly go down in that particular country. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's because they just have that robust an infrastructure, mm. um, or that um, uh, the 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 internet connectivity that may have formerly come from Russia um, is now you know coming from the other side of the country that you know borders on uh, other countries or or on the. Uh, uh, I forget which C that is they have out there, yeah. but the um, but you're right. And I was going to mention Elon just because I thought that too was another thing that was really really fascinating. That again we didn't have in past times, and that is simply that you know what you want some internet. Well, you know I happen to have these satellites flying around. Let's yeah. light up your country, and we will ship you a bunch of receiver discs, and off you go. Um, even, you know, had the internet gone out completely in Ukraine, then I think that uh, this would have been seen as truly, uh, I don't want to say life-saving because that implies too much, but definitely something that fundamentally changes the nature of how the technology is and is not 
uh, a weapon of war in these situations. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, and let's face it, there's still the possibility, right? There's still an opportunity where uh, uh, Russia could come around and, and manage to cut off the internet from wherever else it happens to be coming in. But even if they do, Starlink is still there. Um, and I think, honestly, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of the many, you know, kind of cool technologies that are around. There's a lot of infrastructure technology too. I, I saw, I, I was just watching BBC News mm-hmm. and um, they were showing uh, inside a supermarket and and they were showing how like baked goods were pretty much cleaned out. But I was impressed with how much, uh, you know, other stuff like fruits and vegetables and other things that were still in, you know, supermarket shelves mm-hmm. uh, in Kiev. And, you know, it's just probably because of more advanced infrastructure, which includes information technology to be able to, you know, for trucks and trains and deliveries. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's different. And it's it's not just a different time, but it's also different, you know, like Ukraine is an advanced European country. It's I think the that's, stuff I, think I see that, in, yeah. That's one of the things I think that's gone under the radar for a lot of people is I think we have this perception. I'd even call it a pre-Cold War perception of quote unquote, Eastern Europe. As yeah. being impoverished and uh, subpar, not quite a third, not quite third world. But mm-hmm. I think that any of us that lived through the Cold War um, may still have that lingering perception, and that is so clearly not the case here. Yeah. Um, Ukraine is very much a modern technological society, and indeed, in that um, Wall Street Journal podcast I was listening to this morning, they mentioned that one of the things that they're a little concerned about is that the rest of the world, the rest of the of technology providers, companies that use technology or use like programmers in Ukraine, use technology folks in Ukraine as part of their business um, are being impacted because now, of course, those people may be impacted by a war. They may not have the connectivity they're used to. There's all sorts of other things going on. But apparently there's a fairly large technical and development community that's built up in the Ukraine. So they're actually um, uh, contributing a great deal to technology the world over. Yep. Yep. Uh, there's coders and all, you know, apps that are from companies that come out of there that you don't even realize. I mean, you know, nobody thinks about, well, what country is this app from? Mm-hmm. Or where's the owner of the app? Where are the developers for the app? You know, and sometimes, you know, you, you, you think, oh, it's all in California, but it's actually all over the world. Um, and, and yeah, that's, uh, that's the case with a lot of stuff going on there. Um, even just seeing, you know, the, having the social media a- aspect of whether you're on TikTok or some other platform, um, being able to see into people's homes as they report in and say, what's going on and what, what are they experiencing? And then looking at their homes and saying, boy, I would have no idea that that was Ukraine. It looks like my place. Right. Exactly. You know, yep. it's the, it's the same Samsung TV in the background. It's yeah. like, it's the same, you know, it's the same stuff. It's like, they're dressed the same. They, they, you know, there's an accent and that's it. That's the only you know thing that seems to be different. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting. And, you know, just to have that kind of connection, uh, you know, direct connection, person to person, um, is interesting. There's a lot of other tech, technology stuff. Of course, all of the uh, sanctions, there's, of course, the government's doing sanctions, but companies are now also doing sanctions. I mean, there's organizations like the NHL, for instance, um, sports organizations. There, of course, are uh, things like Netflix, 
uh, refusing to carry a Russian state TV. And I think that's uh, direct- another one of those things that's kind of surprising. We just don't think mm. about it. Yeah. Net- Netflix is in the Ukraine. Yeah. Right. And, and well, no, I thought they're in Russia too. And they're in Russia. Yeah. yeah. And okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes sense. It's just not something you think of. Uh, the again, the same podcast I was listening to. The the issue that they're uh, up against is that uh, apparently Russia recently, as in the last few months, passed some kind of a regulation that required them Netflix to carry the Russian state TV, and of course Netflix is declining to do so. Uh, what will come of that is unclear, uh, but it just it, it is fascinating. Russia or. Uh, uh, Netflix isn't necessarily the largest streaming uh, operation in Russia, but clearly it's significant enough that uh, you know people are paying attention to. Yeah, um, and of course, all the social media networks are there. Uh, there's an issue with Facebook. Um, Facebook started fact checking. Well, you know they they were fact checking things, right? And they started labeling the official Russian news sources. Right. as either fake news or under dispute or whatever. And Russia said, no, you can't do that. Our official sources, you can't put those labels on those. Right. And Facebook just ignored them, and right. still labeling them and basically challenging Russia to say, well, take Facebook down if you're, you know. Which they've done. Which they've done. Yes. Um, and, but, you know, that's in, in and of itself, you know, there's a propaganda war going on inside of Russia. Right. And, you know, it gets to the point where you know, if you all you do is you watch Russian state TV, and you have you happen to be on Facebook to chat with your friends and family. Suddenly, you're like, well, everything seems to be going well. We're we're doing this just fight in Ukraine because that's what the TV tells me. But all of a sudden, Facebook doesn't work anymore. Right. What's going on with that? Maybe I should ask one of my friends who knows more about this kind of thing. What's going on? Why isn't Facebook working? Right. And it kind of wakes people up. You know, the, the same thing with uh, other things. Apple has stopped. This happened just minutes before we started recording this. Right, has announced that they are stopping sales of all products in Russia. So if you want to get a new MacBook or an iPhone in Russia right now, it just says delivery unavailable. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and so apparently, you, there's yeah. a movie theater or movie chain or a, a studio. They are not releasing uh, the Batman yeah. in yeah. in Russia. Uh, I saw a meme that said they're going to be releasing Batman versus Superman instead because it's uh, unusual or harsh and unusual punishment. But um, uh, so, yeah, everybody's involved in this. So one of the things we should talk about, because this is something that I actually have a little bit of experience with, of all things back in the doll shop days, um, is Swift. Yes. Swift is a really, really big thing. Um, It is how you transfer money internationally. It used to be a very uh, laborious process, lots of paper involved, lots of written instructions without standards involved. And that, of course, all got replaced by what is now known as SWIFT. Um, I don't have the acronym in front of me, uh, but it does have to do with international financial transactions. But it is... uh, a standard way of making sure that your the bank in your country has a way to accurately and quickly transfer funds to a bank in another country. And this is how a lot of international payments, a lot of international transfers, in fact, I'd say most are actually handled. Of the the move, the 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 intent, the the request on behalf of a lot of people is that Russia simply be cut off from SWIFT. In other mm-hmm. words, any any banks 
uh, in Russia would be unable to send or perhaps more importantly, receive money through this, uh, this technology. And it is just technology. Somebody likened it to nothing more than a messaging system, really. Uh, but the, the issue there, of course, is that that would have potentially dramatic financial ramifications on uh, Russia itself, because this is how they get paid for the oil and gas that they produce or the other things that they uh, are are uh, responsible for. Or, or so, buying things or purchasing. And, and for buying things from overseas. So it, but the problem, of course, is that, well, it also has um, you know, what we'll call collateral damage in the sense that, uh, you know, a lot of countries are doing business with Russia on purpose and it would in, you know, impact them as well. Fewer and fewer companies seem to be electing to continue to do business with Russia. But nonetheless, um, there are issues that potentially uh, turning off SWIFT for Russia could have some potentially uh, serious repercussions. And it's unclear what it would do to the financial markets, and it's unclear what it would do to um, to Russia, you know, the, the people living in Russia. Yeah, uh, and it's... Uh... Uh, yeah, it, it, there's also because SWIFT is cut off. Is is there any way for money to like leave Russia and go somewhere else? Well, it turns out there's a very new thing that yes. allows you to transfer money all around the world without the government having anything to do with it. Cryptocurrency, um, and Russia is actually very active in Bitcoin and mm -hmm. other cryptocurrencies. Um, and there has been some talk from the U.S. government, actually, of keeping an eye on that. There's no real way to shut it off. But I've heard some... that there are people asking for that, though. Yeah. Well, right? the, the thing know. is, you still have to you still have to you, you could still go and say, like, OK, no using cryptocurrency to buy things or sell things to Russia right. and there's still still a law, you know, you should still be breaking the law by using cryptocurrency for it. Nobody could actually stop, you know, right now, Swift, you could go in and say, oh, let's let's buy some, you know, Russian something or sell something to the company in Russia. And then the transaction wouldn't work. It wouldn't go through. Whereas cryptocurrency, it would, mm -hmm. but you could still make it illegal, you know, against a sanction. So it's not allowed. One of um, the um, folks behind one of the uh, cryptocurrencies, I'm not sure who or which one also made an interesting statement that I thought was, well, at least thought provoking. Yeah. And that is this, that, okay, let's say we could, let's say that there is a way to say, you know what? Nobody in Russia can make Bitcoin transactions. We'll just notice where they're coming from. And we just, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, that's kind of exactly what cryptocurrency was designed to prevent. Yeah. Right? I know. Yeah. Cri cryptocurrency is all about no rules. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's the software is uh, the rule of law in that sense. And um, there's no value judgment placed on the transactions. Uh, and that's intentional. That's very intentional because it keeps governments from sticking their fingers into that particular financial method. But this is a case where, OK, some people would normally like to have their fingers in that method. And here's a case where, no, that by design, this is not what this was meant to do. Yeah, well. It, this could be something that actually propels uh, cryptocurrency, maybe not um, right, you know, like right now, but kind of if you think about uh, countries in the future saying, okay, so boy, it's that easy to be cut off from SWIFT. Maybe in the future, we should be doing everything using cryptocurrency. So if a situation right. arises, 
then SWIFT isn't an issue. Um, so on that news, a lot of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are actually up um, in value, uh, seeing as you know, the, seeing as the future might be more <laughs> cryptocurrency friendly because of this. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, let's see. Oh, one thing I did want to mention, I mentioned this earlier. Uh, we keep talking about Kiev. And I was wondering if that was like, is this some other city I'm not aware of? I've, yeah. I've heard of Kiev, but never Kiev. Um, as it turns out, uh, using pronouncing it Kiev and spelling it K-Y-I-V is actually proper from the Ukrainian perspective. Yeah, Kiev, K-I-E-V, that we've normally seen in the past, is in fact the same city, but that's using Russian pronunciation and spelling. Mm. So, um, you know, to just be as accurate as possible and as as appropriate in this case, uh, that's why everybody is now calling it Kiev, even though, again, those of us who've been around for a while, especially through the Cold War, um, would recognize it as Kiev. Speaking of which, there's an aspect to a lot of the discussions I've been hearing lately that I have a hard time reconciling. Uh, like I said, I'm I'm old enough that you know I know what the Cold War looked like, and as this was ramping up before it turned into an actual armed conflict, there were a lot of people saying that this is um, just another Cold War brewing. This is a new Cold War. Mm. I don't see it that way at all. Do you? Well, it's certainly not cold. You know, <laughs> not anymore, right? But I think this yeah. was a discussion that was happening before they they actually crossed the border. Well, I, you but, know, I think yeah, I think you've got too. Uh, it's heated up too much to be cold, right? I mean, now you've got all you know. Uh, you have things like the airspace. That's another thing we haven't even talked about: airspace being closed, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, what is it? Uh, the EU and Canada and Japan have all closed their airspace. Which, if you look at a map, that's three or four sides around Russia. Um, the the thing is, it's it's too hot right now. Too many countries have actually thrown in and said, yes, sanctions, yes, cut off airspace, yes, cut off financial tra- transactions and all of that. It's a cold, roll, a cold war needs to simmer. It doesn't need to boil over like this. Right. I mean, the only thing that hasn't happened at this point is another country hasn't entered in, um, you know, militarily. I did hear that Portugal sent a small contingent of troops, but. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, I know a know lot of countries are, are sending um, weapons and missiles. Oh, weapons. Yes. Oh yes. yeah. And there's tons of weapons. I mean, you know, the U S has been sending weapons for years sure. and intensifying recently. Now all these other countries are sending weapons. Um, you also have the thing where Swiss Switzerland is it neutral, you know, <laughs> right, which is, so that too is kind of monumental all by itself. Uh, neutral, neutral all through World War II, but. Yeah, not this. So, um, mm. but you know, you so you've got things are pretty intense. There's weapons. There are also brigades from all sorts of countries coming across. Which it was something I was wondering about early on. It was like it seemed like in history you always hear about like the Americans who fought in China before uh, the U.S. officially entered the war and all of that. It's like why don't you hear about this stuff happening now? And then as soon as I started wondering, I started hearing about it. Um, so brigades of citizens from different countries are actually appearing uh, right. at the U- Ukrainian border. Um, and yeah, you've got uh, interesting stuff. I mean, that, you know, if, uh, if you were to think that maybe Russia would eventually be successful in taking over Ukraine, um, the Polish border is right there. 
And yes. Poland's not probably not going to be very happy about that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Like I don't other- see it. I don't see a way for it to simmer now. I mean, even right. at yeah. the height of the cold war, yeah. it wasn't we, like we never got active like this. The, um, I did hear something about potentially Belarus um, entering more actively on Russia's side. Well, um, yeah, more than so than they already are. <laughs> I mean, they're already right. letting basically their their territory being u- being used as staging ground and and all of that. I mean, that's pretty. I mean, if there is a third party to this, I, I would definitely say th- there is a third party to this. It's Belarus at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, and and they are and and to be clear, Russia and Belarus form the Union State, a an entity known as the Union State. I was unaware it. of that. Yes, they several years ago they formed the Union State, um, and seems weird for just Russia and Belarus to be in it. And I'm sure that a plan was probably laid to expand the Union State. Maybe even rename it to something else later on after a few more like countries maybe are added to it. Soviet, maybe the or just the <laughs> Russian Union state. I don't know. Uh, the and of course you've got those. You know, even if you go to the early breakaway republic stage of this, you know the two breakaway republics on the on the eastern edge of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Plus, you have other places like Moldova and stuff that uh, could potentially be come part of some sort of union state. I don't, I don't really know what the plan is there. I don't know if anybody does, but it is interesting to note that, yeah, there is this formal relationship between Russia and Belarus. I did not realize it was as close as it was then. Yeah. yeah. I always assumed Belarus was yet yet another country in that region um, operating, you know, no, no, very deciding close. to go this way instead of that way. Yes. Very close. I mean, definitely Russia's ally in all of this. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. So one of the one of the stories that caught my eye this morning, uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, there was a uh, a teenager who used technology mm. to track Elon Musk's plane. Yeah. Uh, kind of, kind of, you know, where is Elon today? And he got in trouble for that. Uh, Elon wanted him to stop, of course. And I think um, the Elon did not win that one. I think the teenager did. I think he was just using. Uh, public information uh, that is, you know, just standard stuff. And he was putting it together in this unique way that allowed him to track Elon. Uh, apparently, he is now putting his talents to monitoring, as they call it, Russian oligarchs and Vladimir Putin. Uh, where are they great. today? Which I think is fascinating because a lot of them are not where you'd think they might be, right? A lot of them aren't necessarily in Russia. A lot of them are, uh, you know, elsewhere on the planet. And this is kind of an interesting way to uh, find out uh, where they've all gone to. Uh, there's no answering, of course, why they've gone there, but it's just sort of another interesting use of technology in unexpected ways, and especially by unexpected people. Mm. Yeah, and it's good good use for that skill i thought that was a great pivot for that person yes. Yes. <laughs> uh let's see i think gosh you know there's so much we could potentially talk about here but i think um you know this obviously is necessarily our area of expertise we're certainly not experts in international politics and uh, warfare but i just you know the the technology aspect of this has been really really interesting to watch and interesting to keep an eye on. I'm, I'm expecting to do that for a while. A lot of, for, for those interested in diving in a little bit deeper, the resources that I've found that have been particularly 
uh, well written, well thought through, um, as it turns out, are in fact the Wall Street Journal. Now, I realize that for a lot of people, that's going to be behind a paywall. Uh, mm. I'm a subscriber, but it is good information, not only about the technology, but then about the impl- the ramifications on uh, the eventual um, uh, you know, financial markets and implications of all that's going on. Another resource that I uh, have is the Financial Times, ft.com. And one of the things that they mentioned this morning is that they're making a large amount of their Ukrainian conflict uh, content uh, free. So they're taking it away, you know, taking it out from behind the paywall. So that's another good resource for uh, uh, taking a look at some of some of what's going on from what I would consider to be reasonable and vetted sources. Now, granted, both of those are going to have a, a technology slash business perspective, but that I think is something that is um, a little bit closer to the kinds of things that you and I are uh, are interested in. Have you you mentioned a couple of other resources before? I, what were you, where are you getting most of your information on these from? Oh, well, I mean, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, of course, I try to tap into the TV news, but, um, I, you know, I've been watching a lot of BBC World News. Simply That's because, right, BBC, yes. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, I figure it's, you know, being being there in Europe um, is one thing. It's a little closer. And also time zone wise, they're a little closer to dealing with uh, upcom- you know, breaking news that's coming out. Also, they definitely seem to have a different uh, style. Um, and I'm kind of tired of the American style of, you know, repeating every 15 minutes or so, right. um, everything that's going on. Um, you know, it's interesting to actually uh, have them some have an interviewee on some expert on something or somebody that's in Ukraine or whatever. And instead of having them talk for a minute and break away, <laughs> actually allowing them to talk for 10 minutes. Right. Um, and it's like, oh, they're actually letting letting them keep going on and on about the, what they're an expert at. And that's kind of interesting. Um, just looking at stuff online, I I try to you know look on. As I said, I I'm interested in looking at on TikTok to see exactly like you know just people just everyday stuff. I mean, you're not going to get a big picture. Um, and if, actually, if you are getting a big picture report on TikTok, you have to be kind of suspicious of it. Um, right, but right, yeah. but actually getting more of just like, you know, maybe one person's story or one person's, you know, uh, who's the, their, you know, feelings on how dire the situation is or whatever. Um, so, yeah, just a, a variety of different things. Interesting I mean, in the end, stuff. All, all we're doing is consuming. Uh, you and I is consuming the the news. Right. Um, we're, we're kind of powerless to be doing anything at the moment, but uh, right. Other than I've been using a number of um, online resources to try and vet uh, mm, poten- yeah. some some potential places where I might send uh, some donations um, just to help out. You know, it's a drop in the bucket, but um, it's literally almost literally the only thing that's yeah. in my control for this. So it is something that um, that we're considering doing. Um, and as is um, our, uh, uh, you know, our leaning, uh, Kathy, my wife happened to find a couple of um, uh, charities that are specifically helping the animals in the Ukraine uh, mm-hmm. because they too are having all sorts of issues with, you know, shelters running out of food and animals being abandoned and all that kind of stuff. So there's an opportunity sure. for um, some assistance that a lot of people might not choose to do. And I, I totally respect and understand that, but because it's part of part of uh, the way we live, the part of the way we think, um, mm-hmm. that's another, another. And it's interesting to, to one of the things that's very different now 
than in previous years is that we have this opportunity to really donate direct, right? I mean, the, the money that I have here, I have the opportunity to send it directly to organizations in the Ukraine if I so desire. Hmm. And I find that really fascinating. In years past, you would have been stuck with an intermediary, be it right. the Red Cross or UNICEF or any of another, uh, you know, a number of other perfectly great organizations. But there's things have changed so much that um, you know the very things we were talking about earlier about money transfer, they're actually aiding our ability to make an impact directly in the countries that are being impacted by this war. Mm-hmm. So okay, alrighty, let's yeah. uh, let's leave war behind for the moment and uh, move on to global warming. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! So, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned uh, uh, termination shock. Yeah, the book by Neil Stevenson, the most recent one. And I started reading it and I finished it over the weekend. Um, I wanted to, to, to ask you before I pass my judgment, <laughs> what was your reaction to the book? What did you think of it? Um, as a, mostly the way I reacted to it is as a Neil Stevenson fan, who's I think read everything he's ever written, right. or at least every novel he's ever written. Um, the, uh, as a, I wouldn't rank it near his top books, um, partially because it kind of uh, had a very, it didn't have a very strong plot. <laughs> you know, it was a lot of interesting things that ha- basically the book is a bunch of interesting th- things that happened to a bunch of interconnected people in a period of time. Um, it happened to do a lot with climate change and things like that. Whereas other books he's he's written have a very specific plot, you know, and there's beginning, middle, and end, and the hero, and a you know all of this. Um, so so my reaction was good read, really interesting stuff. Enjoyed you know every paragraph of the thing, but yeah, you know, was, as a story, it wasn't that great. Okay. Um, okay. I, I I did like, but I you know the stuff that was in there, I liked. Uh, several of the characters were great. Uh-huh. Um, he, as usual, he collects, he seems to be a collector of interesting, like futuristic technology things and that nobody else is talking about. And then he puts them into a story. Like, of course, the main thrust and, you know, I guess, spoiler alert, right? We want to say spoiler alert. The main thrust being, you know, the idea of putting uh sulfur into the atmosphere to counteract, uh, you know, the carbon going up into the atmosphere. Right. Um, I was and, wondering if that wouldn't cause acid rain. Yeah. I, I mean, they explain that a bit and it's something I, to do with it being pure, pure sulfur and where it was being inserted in the atmosphere. Yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, that's explained a bit and there's other parts of it, you know, even just the, you know, I, all these things I assumed were true of sulfur. It turns out that if you have it in its, purest state doesn't actually happen um bummer there was that there was the stuff about drones there was the stuff about you know hawks and drones mm-hmm. there was a stuff about even the the exploding uh exploding bombs under the water in a harmonic pattern yes um that was fascinating it's and funny because that was also a, never resolved right i mean no it was, it was never resolved it, so it's but he does that he throws things into his book that he wants to basically make people aware of and then he doesn't talk, you know, he doesn't necessarily contribute to the story. Um, like in uh, Seven Eves, he has a whole thing on uh, being able to have aircraft that have no engines. 
you know, and how it's possible to actually fly through the atmosphere using the energy already in the atmosphere, but really doesn't have any bearing on the story. He spends lots of pages <laughs> telling you about it. So it's the same kind of thing here, you know, uh, with that and, you know, the hydrogen powered plane, um, mm-hmm. the, you know, all, all the technology to shoot the sulfur up, the, the drones that have a person in them, you know, that to take you on a tour, uh, mm-hmm. the earth suits, um, even the the killer pigs. Um, well, the, yeah, the wild boar. Honestly, wild I've I've heard a couple of stories hybrids. about them being um, uh, being a real problem down in the south. So yes, well, that yeah, one didn't it, surprise me at all. Yeah. So there's so many. He throws he gathers these things together and he puts them into the story. And it's just fast. It's like going through a museum uh, museum of the future <laughs> with you know showing off all these things. Um, even the idea, you know, with climate change that, you know, most aircraft don't have the correct, um, you know, the capabilities to land or take off in temperatures that we could probably expect airports like the airport in Houston to, to be at right. in just a few decades. Uh, of course, he avoids ever telling us what year um, this I takes place that. in. Yes. Yeah. And, and then he throws fictional stuff in there too. Like, for instance, the mine in, uh, in Guinea isn't a real place, but there are several real places like it. Right, right. Just the one he invent he invents one, and he does that a lot. And uh, he invents whole countries, <laughs> whole sure. islands, whole you know things, uh, just to make things easier uh, to tell a story. And he does that in this you know slightly alternate version of the Earth where he's telling this story. Uh, all those service stations, those 100, 100 gas pump service stations, all this cool stuff. He's like he must have a notebook filled with these ideas <laughs> and then he pulls them out and creates a story and he doesn't even need a good plot he could just put them in a book and it's wonderful um, so that ultimately yeah. is my biggest criticism of the book it's like there's yeah. some interesting stuff in here but you get to the end and it's like okay okay yeah what i mean there's no resolution there's nope. no there's no there's no hope um there's no there's some acknowledgement that the uh, the whole shooting sulfur into the atmosphere is it's a solution to a symptom and not the problem mm. right i mean it's you know I, and in fact during the book some places started to cool down we actually spend enough time in that universe so that uh you know the the intended effect is starting to be achieved but it doesn't necessarily solve the th- the underlying problem of global warming it just does the symptom um, and it, it's, aside from just saying that, you know, this is what's happening, there's no resolution. There's no, not what happens no, next. No, and that's, like, that's kind of what makes it a subpar Neil Stevenson book. Uh, many of his other books do certainly have resolutions and things that happen and plots that complete. Um, this is a little bit different. I wouldn't even talk about the whole line of actual control um, right. battles that took place between India and China, which was like a whole whole story onto itself i mean it's like you and know that story seemed to only serve the purpose of creating a specific yeah. character for a specific role completely unrelated to that later yeah in the book. it's but it but it was fascinating i mean it was like if he, if he had just written a novelette that was just that it would have been great that would have been interesting yeah that's so, a really interesting thing so, so to tie a couple of things together here um, it's almost like what we've been talking about going on in the Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. We have folks with their iPhones, you know, recording when showing and live streaming what's going on here. 
honestly, doing this all with drones, I'm kind of surprised it's not already happening. Um, but that's yeah. really all this is, the next level of, of, um, uh, of live reporting, live citizen reporting. Uh, whether or not you end up with quote unquote celebrities from the conflict is a completely different, completely different discussion. But uh, but yeah, so there's definitely a few things in what he's written that are so plausible as to make you think, why isn't that happening now? Right. This seems like it could be happening now. Well, that's a lot of, uh, I think, the whole Neil Stevenson, you know, his whole library of books that he's got is a lot of times you read them because he hits on so many of these futuristic things and some of them end up happening or a version of them ends up happening as anybody that's ever read cryptonomicon before cryptocurrency existed right will proudly state that they've read cryptonomicon and they knew this was going to happen because they read the book where you know it was invented or whatever it's not quite the same thing the currency and cryptonomicon and bitcoin are not the same thing, but it, there's an element there. Right. Um, and it's the same thing here. You read this because a few of those things may actually happen. And then you can, you know, have this sort of kind of heads up that, you know, here are, are some possible future things. Um, so anyway, it's, if you like future things, if you like books that include plausible you know, uh, how, how society will change in a plausible way and what things may be around in 20, 30 years. Right. Um, it's a great book for that. Yeah. Just don't go looking for a plot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so the other um, cool thing I wanted to mention here, um, you've got a note here in our, our little back and forth chat that I sound a little echoier today, um, mm. that there's a little bit of echo going on. Let me turn something off and you can tell me if I have suddenly become even more echoey. It's very possible that I have. It's unclear. You have to become me. more echoey, yes. Excellent. Okay, that's really good to know. So what I've done, let me turn this back on. Um, that by the way was crisp.ai getting turned off and back on again. Um, mm. It is software that essentially removes background noise. Uh, if you didn't hear my dogs bark earlier in the show, that's why. Uh, they were barking outside the office door here. And that's the big news for me is that I'm in my new office. I think Excellent. I mentioned that, uh, you know, I, we've been doing a remodel and it's taken longer than expected, mostly because of COVID, but also supply chain and this, that, and the other thing. Um, it's the classic case of the last 10% taking 90% of the time on top of mm. everything else. But we got it to a point where I'm able to move back into my office and that's where I'm at. And in fact, what I'm going to do is um, nobody's seen it yet. Uh, nobody at all. So what I'm going to do is um, I've just turned on my video recorder and my webcam so that I can take a few screenshots and I will share a screenshot of what my new background looks like. It's a little boring, but it's not too bad. Uh, what the new background looks like and uh, with the promise of things to come and our TEH listener or all two of them will be the uh, the first to see what it's going to look oh, like. Cool. Um, but yeah, and that's the, right now uh, the the office has a desk in it and a chair and not a lot else. It's got a X pin for the dog and you know that kind of stuff. But um, so there's a lot of empty space here. I'm actually getting a little bit more furniture in it uh, tomorrow. And we're hoping that that and a couple of good rug choices may also help dampen down the echoiness of the room. Um, I was counting on Crisp doing a good job, and that's why 
uh, I wanted to to run this exercise uh, with with this podcast. And uh, so, you know, if if it's as long as it's acceptable for now, hopefully it'll get better in the future. But anyway, that's pretty exciting for me. It's been nice to get into a real office again, rather than the temporary space I had um, in a in a a converted smallest bedroom in the house. That's what I was using before. So cool. what you got? Oh, I just finished reading an interesting book that uh, when I started, I would not have thought I would be mentioning it here or even to you, um, but it surprised me. Uh, it's a book called Planet Walker, 22 Years of Walking, 17 Years of Silence. It's written by a guy named John Francis. And basically the story is, is that as a young man in the Bay Area, he witnessed a, an oil spill and the devastation it caused. And shortly after that, he decided uh, to no longer ride in motorized vehicles, um, so just walk or or cycle everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after that, it, it kind of decided to become a, a bit of a, an environmental activist. Um, he decided to stop talking, um, partially because uh, he'd get into lots of arguments with people over the environment. And this would have been in the 1970s, actually. Uh, and uh, he decided, well, arguing doesn't accomplish anything. Uh, if I stop talking, I could just listen and just started it out for like a day, a month, a year. And it went on for 17 years. And during those 17 years where he only walked and he didn't speak, uh, he had quite a journey. Um, he ended up walking up to Oregon where he got a went to school without speaking and got a bachelor's degree, uh, ended up walking across to Montana where he enrolled in a master's degree program. And then eventually walking all the way to Madison, Wisconsin, where he got his PhD all in environmental related sciences and studies. Um, did it actually walk all the way across the country to the East coast, uh, and has this fascinating story. Um, I, Several times I thought of you because of your newsletter, a type of thing, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned in this book that fit with some of, you know, stoicism and, and, uh, you know, even like Buddhist thoughts and all of that. Um, uh, Just the whole idea of that when he stopped talking, he started to me, it seemed he started really absorbing great deal of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I mean, getting all those degree programs, learning from people all over the place. Um, and, uh, you know, went from being somebody who really didn't know much about this stuff and it was just a normal guy to basically being one of the world's leading experts on certain parts of the environment, uh, all by not saying anything. Um, he also, um, also it was very notable in there that, you know, the, the walking thing was a, basically he didn't want to contribute to the pollution of the earth through using, you know, his feeling was if he used motorized vehicles, he was using the oil. And he was there, therefore, partially responsible for the oil spills. Um, That was why. But what it did is really slow things down for him. So instead of, you know, flying into a place, doing something and then flying out, he took a long time to walk there and he met people along the way. And then he would rest and stay someplace. And and by slowing everything down, he was really able to get, you know, have uh, deeper uh, learning experiences. and make deeper connections with people because he was never in a rush. He couldn't be, he was walking. <laughs> I mean, walking across Montana, you can't be in a rush. You have to take your time. <laughs> um, 
uh, another like another lesson that I really took uh, at one point in the book, he is trying to get into he's trying to get from South Dakota into Minnesota, where he's going to spend the winter and the weather is turning cold and he starts walking and there's a huge snowstorm and he decides he's going to have to give up on his plan and turned around and goes to the last small town just shy of the Minnesota border in South Dakota. And he spends all winter there and he ends up making friends, getting a job, learning how to work at printing press, you know, doing all these things and having all these experiences takes like a whole chapter of the book. And what his goal was basically if the storm hadn't come, or if he decided to push through the storm, he would have been in Minneapolis for the winter. It was just a tiny little change where he made a decision and he ends mm-hmm. up having all this, this, these experiences because of it. So maybe think about like all the times, especially as an entrepreneur, where I've had to choose a path and maybe I felt, oh, if I had only taken that risk or done that thing. Um, but then, hey, what actually happened to me because I didn't, right? you know, and I had yeah. all these experiences. So that was a big lesson for me in the book. Um, he's definitely, you know, his whole not talking and not riding motorized vehicles for so long. That was you know, him sticking to his principles and having convictions. But the thing is that he ended up because of that achieving his goals because at the beginning of the 20 years he basically witnessed an oil spill and thought i want to really do something so he stopped talking and stopped riding motorized vehicles 20 years later he finds himself on the east coast after getting a phd and the coast guard hires him after the exxon valdez disaster oh really wow to write the legislation for or, or the regulations for oil tankers so 20, you know, you think anybody that's the, that decides I'm going to do something about this, what are the chances they actually are going to be in a position to do something later right. in their lives? Right. He actually accomplishes that. 20 years later, he finds himself doing the exact thing that he wanted to do at the beginning, which was kind of incredible to me. Um, and another thing is that um, I was amazed in the book because he talks just about like, you know, visiting this town, visiting this reservation going to you know this national park and all this as he's moving a constant theme over and over in the book is somebody sees him on the road and they ask him do you need a ride mm-hmm. oh you know and he hands him a little piece of paper explaining he doesn't talk and he doesn't ride a motorized vehicles people giving him food people giving him money people letting them stay in their houses over and over again it's like the whole journey of people being friendly and generous to him Mm-hmm. The entire time, there are a couple little incidents where that doesn't happen. Right. It is. I mean, it's got to be at least a hundred times that he mentions specifically of somebody being very generous for really no reason, just because it's their nature. And I didn't expect this book to be one of such optimism, but for me, it really reminded me that for every mean person out there, <laughs> you know, there might be a hundred people that would just see somebody walking by to the side of the road and say, you look thirsty. I have some more water. As or, as you know, a couple of my publications actually are about yeah. those kind of topics. And yeah, yeah. For every one bad incident, there's a hundred really good ones that never, you never, ever hear about. Um, yeah. So yeah, this is, this is very cool. Dang it. it it's added, not like added a to my reading list best. again. Yeah, I know. I didn't, it's, it's like a, it's not a popular book. It's not something you're going to find on like lists and stuff. And I was impressed that it was so good and uh, wanted to recommend it to, to you specifically, because I think it fits in with a lot of other things you do. Now, what you've got here in the notes is apparently a TED talk. So yeah. So he, he apparently did, started know, talking. Yeah. So at, he did 20, <laughs> 
22 years where he didn't ride in motorized vehicles and 17 years of silence. I mean, eventually he did start talking and after the 17 years, um, which was good because then after that, he got the job at the Coast Guard, you know, uh, to talk. and. Write so was, the, was it a decision to start talking again? Does he talk yes. about it? Okay. He okay. talks about that extensively. It's just every birthday, he started, stopped talking on his birthday. And every birthday, he reassessed his decision. He made it, he didn't want it to be something like he wanted to be something he reassessed all the time. Okay. And the same thing with walking. He talks about his decision to start riding in motorized vehicles, but with great intent. Um, he actually became a UN goodwill ambassador. He still is, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, when, and he tried to do various things without motorized vehicles. I mean, like at one point working for the Coast Guard, he, he goes from Washington, D.C. to uh, Philadelphia to in- inspect an oil tanker, something that they do. Mm-hmm. And he bikes up there. Sure. And But the people at the oil tank company or ran the ship had to hear about that. Oh, you're going to have a guy coming. He's arriving by bike from Washington because he doesn't <laughs> ride in motorized vehicles. But just, you know, it turned what would have been a routine inspection into a whole conversation about who's responsible for oil spills and all this stuff. I mean, it's a fascinating story. And there's probably like a hundred more lessons to learn from it that I'm not even getting into. Um, it's a re- really interesting thing. And there's a, yeah, the TED talk. So he did give a TED talk in t- 2008. That would have been years after he stopped talking uh, or stopped not talking. Um, and he has flown since then he's done walks across Australia, walks across Cuba, uh, you know, all the basically raising awareness about the environment and, and issues, uh, things like that. So very cool. Very, so, very yeah, cool. It's a, a really cool book. I'm so glad I stumbled in a weird way across this, this, uh, this book that you, I don't know how else I would have found it, but yeah. Like I said, I will, uh, I'll be adding it to my list. Cool. So, um, as usual, we have no sponsor other than ourselves. We get to yeah. choose a couple of things to, t- to ask you to have a look at. My blatant self-promotion this week is an article that published last week or updated last week. Just what is a backup anyway? The reason that's an article at all is because, honestly, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of misinformation, if you will, about exactly what it means to back something up. And I try to distill it down into um, simple terms that make exactly what you need to do um, to make sure you're backed up a little bit more obvious. That's askleo.com slash 29690. Just what is a backup anyway? Cool. I will point to uh, my recent video, learn about Mac image file formats, which actually could be just as useful to Windows users. Um, it's good to know about, you know, what's the difference between a JPEG and a, and a GIF or mm-hmm. a PNG. Yep. Um, particular to Mac users is the HEIC format, which is right. the default now for handling images like on the iPhone. And uh, so you learn about what they are and what makes each one different. Cool. Well, I think that pretty much wraps us up for this week. The show yep. notes are at tehpodcast.com slash teh157. If you've got a comment or a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast, or you can always leave a comment in the show notes page. Thanks, as always, for being here, and we will see you here again real soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.